0: Namotasa more to serve a goato or a hato, some masambudasa. No more to serve Udang namasami. So tonight we're having a meditation vigil, and this seems a very suitable way to to um, commemorate um, the passing away of Ajahn Chah, or really the life of Ajahn Chah, which is somehow you know, culminating in this passing away, which was a, a very significant if uh, event it's not just the passing away; it's actually a gathering, because the passing away of Ajahn Chah causes tremendous gathering. It's like all his life he'd he put out so much in terms of teaching and training and meeting people and being with people that when he passed away, it was like all that came back. <laughs> you know, like he'd put it all out there, and he was holding it. And then when he passed away, it had to recognize itself. It came together. You know. So it's a huge, huge occasion. There's perhaps a million people passing through the monastery. A million people in the course of about a week, including the king and queen, and people from all over the world coming to this, uh, this funeral. And they built a massive uh, chedi stupa in an in, in impossible time. Uh, the professional architects, they didn't think they could do it in that time, so the monks did it themselves. And working all day and all night. And uh, built this uh, amazing stupa chedi, which was then designed to be also the place where they could cremate the body. So it was a funeral part uh, a chimney inside it going up inside it yeah. and then created Boris rebuilt the monastery to, to um, have roads and car parks so that uh, there'd be places for people to stay and all the facilities, toilets and so forth um, so that all these people would find a place to, to stay in the monastery. So all this was done and um and then everybody gathered and during that time it's been always been tradition that there's a huge um donations that the like monastery gives out food so people bring food and they just have these food stores where people can come and get food to eat and take it home uh it's like a kind of welfare thing as well as books done with books and uh the monastery is very crowded with thousands of people sleeping, you know, within hand span of each other, just all around the, the through the forest. If there's no huts; they just sleep on the ground under mosquito nets. And the or the monks, um, by and large, would tend to leave their cooties in order to to live it more, or, um, to kind of emulate the sense of simplicity and just sleep out on the ground on bales of straw. So even the Ajahn Liam, the abbot. Leaves his cootie and just keeps, sleeps out on the ground, on straw, and it's rather cold, so it's quite it's quite tough. You know, it goes down to about 12, 14 degrees. So and there's a chill wind. So particularly if you're used to it being you know thirty eight degrees, this and there's you know no blankets, nothing to keep you warm. It's pretty, it's pretty challenging um, to go through that. So all these things are then gathered together. The sense of the endurance, resilience, which is a big feature of the training and practices, just not physical endurance. <laughs> you know, nothing fancy. Just actually physical endurance. Sleep on the ground in the cold weather. You know, and massive amount of sharing, and people helping each other, and. So thousands of people being together in harmony, sharing the facilities, sharing food, and and uh, then gathering together for the chanting in the evenings, mornings, and uh, meditation sessions and dhamma talks. Right. So that's been part of what what goes on ever since the occasion of his passing away and his funeral, and it sort of becomes a like a tribal thing, tribal. Um, ceremony to bring everybody together and to, to in a way, rekindle or keep keep presenting these motifs, you know, sharing, uh, communality, generosity, personal resilience, modesty, and um, full on commitment to the occasion. You know the idea is that people really go there. And you know, pitch in, and it's generally pretty uh, lively and also quite fun in a in a the way. There's a lot of uh, of uh, you know, people tie people often very fun-loving, sociable people, so it gets quite chatty and and uh, the abbot says, oh, you know, people are just here for the food and the chat. You know, but what are you do to do so. You know, people brings everybody together, makes them feel they belong, so we'll do it. Yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, that's that's the thing. It's like something gets set up. And uh, so, with what, Ajahn obviously, uh, there was nothing there in the 1950s. Ajahn Chah spent his early years uh, travelling, uh, training, it's been a few years, as a junior monk, then started wandering, it's been about seven years wandering, living out under, under one of these, um, what's called a court, which is like a, like a beach umbrella with a mosquito net hanging from it, so you just carry it around and pitch it, hang it in a tree and sleep under it, curl up in it. Um then you just pitch it wherever there's a place, a forest, a graveyard, or somewhere outside a village. And the idea is to keep out, out, away from the more comfortable places so you're really forced to hold yourself together, look after yourself, and um, physically endure uh, the discomfort. Um, meeting that, because um, it's... And then after that, he... Uh, Request his mother. I think requested him to to uh, he visited his home village, Bangor, and near there there was an old forest, and uh, um, so he pitched his his mosquito net umbrella in there, and they asked him to stay, and he said he'd stay for a while. They built these very simple simple huts, which. Very simple and lived on. The alms food, which would also be very simple. Generally just a ball of sticky rice and maybe some chilies and maybe banana, a bit of rotten fish occasionally. So, and then those monks who could bear that would gather round. And that was the uh, that was 1950s, 53, I think. They started Wat Bar During this time, from really from perhaps the Second World War, but certainly the 1950s, 60s onwards, Thailand went through a huge, huge change, probably much more dramatic than the change that's been in Britain, for example, which has been changing, you know, it's always changing, you know, but uh, speeded up with the 18th, 19th century, but it's been changing, but as it's changed, it's also it's changed at a pace where there's been legislation uh, and infrastructures built in to, to moderate the change. You know, you've got parliamentary procedures, you've got planning commission, you've got controls that you can't just put a road here, you can't build a house there, it's all, it's regulated. So it's a kind of, it's, it's checked to some degree. And uh, the country, country like Britain, there's also areas which are, you know, there's a sense of trying to preserve things and keep the forests and keep what bits of <laughs> land we have left. You know, all this. In Thailand, it was none of that in the, in the old days. So it just got this, like somebody just lit a match, or dropped a match on, on dry tinder and the thing just flared. And most of all the forest got cleared. It was something like 70, 80 percent. Uh, forest got cleared. So originally it was like about there, was say seventy percent forested. Now it's about twelve percent. So it just went, you know, the forest just disappeared, like like uh, like somebody burnt them down. You know? So there's very little left. So the uh, the what was originally a very um, tough situation where the the this area of Thailand called the Isan, the northeast, which was um, girded with these dreadful forests that people could hardly get through. It was malaria. You know, and, and and people would often have to travel up rivers because there wasn't reliable roads to get in there. So it was almost like a separate country in its own right. They speak a slightly different language from central Thai. So it was full of disease and forests and uh, snakes and animals and people you know f- carved areas of land out within that to for paddy fields for rice um, and during that time from the nineteen fifties onwards, all this got cleared, so now the only bits of forest you find left are actually inside the monasteries <laughs> monasteries used to sit inside the forest now the monasteries now the forests sit inside the monasteries because they cleared it all. So the only bits that are left are the bits that they've got, monastery builds a wall around, you know. And often monks take it upon themselves to go and live in areas of forests to, to somehow try to, by their physical presence, prevent the forest getting cut down. Mm. And uh, so it's this huge, rabid development uh, and uh, in, in these 30, 50 years or so, mm. And uh, from being in the, you know, Thailand really only coming together as a country in the in the 20th century. It was originally, it was originally just, before that, it was a series of regions that had some affiliations but didn't really represent a unified state. So the, as a unified state, it's really only 100 years old. Um, so what was more prevalent was local customs and local traditions, the things it wasn't like the central government held it, together. it was local customs, local traditions held it together within these forested lands, which often be somewhat separate from the from certainly from the city of Bangkok. Mm. And all that changed. Mm-hmm. So you know, even in Ajahn Charles' days, it was all going, it was shifting, changing. So the very ethos that the forest monks came from which was a forest <laughs> where you have to you know you might get lost in the forest you have to deal with malaria and, and these difficult diseases gone you know so you know the thing that you were kind of practicing with disappears You know, and why practice with it because it's somehow it it was the uh, the thing that was there in your face as the basic understanding of what dukkha was. You know, dukkha is the is the physical difficulty, the loneliness, the barrenness, the hunger, and uh, the the all that. You know, and you just put the mind up against it to see how it's how it can handle that, how it can be with that. You now most of that has now disappeared. In a way, the forest monasteries can be end up being victims of their own success. They become very well supported and well respected, so they're rather you know, um, affluent. And so their tendency is to try to, you know, give away their wealth because you know it can it can ruin it. So there's a lot of spreading and sharing and distributing what they gain over over many monasteries. So what's happened is it's from being kind of a solitary thing where. a one or two monks or a little group of monks would camp out in a forest. The forest is gone, the monasteries are built, and instead you have uh, a sense more like of communal responsibility rather than individual practice. You know, the practice is almost turned around to be... It's still individual, but it's an individual to feel responsible for the, for the welfare of the group. That becomes the big... Um, Uh, testing ground how to keep two or three hundred monasteries supported in contact with each other Mm -hmm. so you know you get a tradition and and, uh, traditions are deceptive in that uh, the outward appearance of them is often not quite what you when you get close to it isn't quite what you see anymore you know it's something that's in the books, in the pictures, in the illustrations. You get up close to it, oh, what is this tradition, you know? Uh, and yet there is a tradition. And the tradition is one, you could say, that Ajahn Chah developed, which was could be independent of cir- circumstances, the tradition of integrity and conscience and concern, person integrity, really applying yourself. Directly, mm. trying to avoid hoarding up anything, apply oneself directly um, to letting go. Apply oneself directly to, to to that practice, and so in a way, this is this is what the and the conscience to keep checking when you are getting lazy or getting slack or or coasting or Puffing yourself up a bit you know <laughs> because in the, in the early days the forest monks were the, were the kind of mavericks who people uh, feared them even you know and tend to, to have a very tough life because people were weren't supportive of them now it's kind of turned the other way around and uh, you get a lot of, get a lot of status being a forest monk. Uh, you know, and particularly if you say you're disciple, that in charge, you get a lot of kudos from that. So it can be quite a a thing you want, that one can take a, can be taken advantage of. So there's always that recognition that uh, you know, outward forms are subject to change. Situations are subject to change. Fortune and misfortune are subject to change. And it's up to us, the the sense of what isn't subject to change is personal integrity. Investigation. The phrase that comes to mind with Ajahn Chah is putting one's life on the line. Meeting the challenge. going over the edge, out of the security. This, in a way, is the lifeblood of the tradition. So that's what makes it um, exp- exportable and and continually relevant. And Jin Chai himself uh, came to the West um, on two tours uh, of America and Britain and he he couldn't speak English maybe a handful of small phrases Um, and uh, you know he's from very basic farming stock so not at all very basic education, you know mm-hmm. kind of basic literacy, basic education mm. we never even seen the sea before you know you live in this area where it's basically it's paddy fields, water buffalos, and uh mm. rice rice farming, the cycles of the of the year going through that. And yet he, uh, he came to uh, Britain and America and was very amused by it all. <laughs> mm. <laughs> was not at all overawed by it. He never seemed to lose a step. I remember when I saw him coming off the Heathrow Airport and uh, he looked totally, totally at ease. Very happy and confident. He had a kind of staff with him walking through just like he was the king of it all. Just totally comfortable. With the whole situation, he couldn't speak a word of the language. He was in an airport in a foreign country and and, uh, completely at ease with that. And then going and staying in a little house in London where we used to live. And uh, he was more at ease with it than anybody else. He really had this uh, totally relaxed, happy, humorous, quipping, joking, teasing people, doing numbers on people, winding people up. Comforting people is he was, he was like immediately in charge of the situation because he wasn't hanging on to to uh, some outward scenario of, of Thailand or of um, Thai mannerisms even. You know? So, entire Thai, Thai mannerisms very, very uh, is again very, very distinctive um, body language which Western people didn't know, don't know. Uh, ways relating to monks which Western people didn't know and these are all very strongly held in Thailand <coughs> <coughs> mm-hmm. and Ajahn Chah's feature of Ajahn Chah is his ability to just always step you know follow integrity conscience and concern wish to help others and uh and to, you know, to put himself on the line, go out of security, out of his own territory into other people's territory in a way. That was a remarkable, and a very big-minded, broad-minded person. And so when he, uh, in Thailand, as you, as you might know, it's, it's the, they have the body language thing is the feet are the lowest and the head is the highest. It's quite obvious, really. And the head is, is sacred, and the feet are kind of the bit you walk on the ground with. So they're dirty. They're the kind of low bit. So whatever you, you never point your feet at somebody. It's like you might as well spit them in the spit in their face as point your feet at somebody. So you never ever point your feet at monks or Buddha roopers or anything like that. In Thailand, just go. Uh, and uh, you never touch anybody on the head. He certainly never, ever, never dream of touching a, a monk or a teacher on the head. And uh, so when when he was going to go to England, people were worried, what are they going to do, these barbarians, you know, they don't, they haven't got any culture over there. <laughs> and he said, oh, I just fit in, you know. He said, they want to pat me on the head, they can pat me on the head if they like. <laughs> they were quite shocked. <laughs> And, uh, also the, the, uh, the, ti the tie, is very strong on the, on the sense of separation between the sexes, between the genders, you know, so that women would tend to stay at least 10 feet away, <laughs> you know, and then down there. And, uh, and that's so that if you often, you don't even realize that, that that's so important for them. And, uh, the women themselves feel uncomfortable they have to get too close, they always kind of go down don't really get too close it's a very strong, strong piece of social conditioning and, and uh, you know <coughs> when Ajahn Char came to, to uh, Brittany had to get on a, on a you know an airport bus of course the bus is like these shuttle buses are it's just packed with people you know, it's not everybody gets off to let the monk on <laughs> so he just you know and it's obviously there's men and women there so he just took one look at it and just got on you know no problem <laughs> and in his own uh, monastery he used to have um, obviously it's a Buddhist country, but then because there were particularly because there were Westerners there, the the uh, there's a strong evangelical Christian movement in Thailand that tries to get people to convert and they'll do almost anything. They often offer, you know, abbots say, "Well, if you disrobe, we'll get you a truck, a pickup truck, and you know, a little house." So they they bribe people to take them out of, <laughs> of Buddhism. <laughs> I think they can get a a prominent Buddhist to change his religion. That's that's considered a great um, trophy. So naturally there can be some animosity there. They've even rewritten some of the Buddhist scriptures to make it seem that the Buddha is saying, well, you know, after a few hundred years someone greater than I will come along. In other words, the Buddha is kind of like a prophet for Jesus. So so there can be some you know animosity or difficult feelings but um as in charles monastery the the christian missionaries would come round to try and convert the westerners who were there and he was fine he said, fine you know you, can, you know if you want to can be converted to christians that's fine with me it's no problem and uh, he one time, when Ajahn Sumedho brought a, a, a little entourage over from England, of the English Buddhists, came over to Wat to see, you know, the great kind of home base, bastion of Buddhism. And at that time, the, some of the, the Western nuns there had converted from Buddhism to Christianity. So there were nuns in the monastery who decided who'd become born-again Christians. They were still, <laughs> still living in the monastery as born-again Christians, and Ajahn Chah just kind of didn't really seem to want to make anything out of it. And uh, then these, these, these Western nuns started trying to convert um, Ajahn Sumedho's entourage to the true way. Now, Wapapong Buddhism was really... It didn't have any loving kindness in it. it didn't have any compassion in it. It was just a dead-end thing of you know, cessation and wearing out and extinction. And it wasn't really the love and the light and the joy that was there with Jesus. And they were so they were trying to convert these English people back to Christianity. So, in, in, in Wapapong, in the monastery. <laughs> so... Ajahn Sumedha went to see Ajahn Chah and said, "Look, you know these—you've got to stop this. I mean, these people, supposed to be nuns, Buddhist nuns, and they're trying to convert my people to Christianity." And Ajahn Chah said, "Well," he said, "Well, maybe they're right." (laughs) (laughs) You know, what do you know? Maybe they're right. So he certainly wasn't hanging on to a lot of stuff in terms of that. So the monastery itself was always kind of fairly chaotic uh, because uh, because of that sense of you know, find out for yourself and uh, you're not here to support some belief, some dogma, some system, some thing. You're here to practice with integrity and uh, and actually that was the thing that always seemed to bring it, you know, its central axis remained unshaken through all the changes of... Because basically if you, as long as that remains there and some people, enough people are embodying it, then the crazy stuff just comes and goes and passes through and there isn't any need to repudiate something. Ajahn Chah himself... Uh, also, he, he allowed uh, when, the, when he started what Panana chart the, the international Buddhist monastery for Westerners because he felt they'd be happier living with people of their own culture, mm. and so they wanted to have a Christmas tree on Christmas because it was a you know it was a thing they were familiar with, and so, they, so the the villagers got a little bit upset about that and uh, about them having a Christmas tree in a monastery and Ajahn Chah came along and said well you know as far as I can see teachings of Jesus are teaching people to be harmless and and uh, experience loving kindness and compassion and they're good teachings so there's virtue and morality and you know not, no greed or hatred this is good stuff we'll call it it's not exactly, we'll call it Chris Budimus <laughs> <laughs> it's kind quite, quite happy to mix them together, you know. Whatever, whatever brings, whatever brings people into to a good focus, you know, in that way. So you know, we see a, a tradition, and yet, and yet also a tradition meeting the changes of of the time, of culture, of suddenly becoming part of a multicultural world a world where the familiar landmarks are being shifted and changed. When he came to Britain, again, he he'd, he'd recognised, well, you know, you can't wear the same sort of robes they wear in Thailand, it's too cold. So he was quite happy and open to... You know, wearing more more clothes, and so very immediately could see that it's just pragmatic. And these are things that uh, it's good to reflect upon because Edinsha uh, uh, himself was wasn't a, a great scholar. He tended to encourage people not to read, you know, and that became one of the features of. Um, the forest tradition, or of course there are many forest traditions, the forest way of life was the emphasis on direct realisation rather than study. So this was in fact the, one of the big turning points that occurred in, in Buddhism in the 19th century in Thailand, where they had become so alienated from direct practice or so removed from direct experience it was just all study or performing the rituals. And the, the, the basic feeling was that nobody could realize Nibbana anyway, anymore. You had to just wait, hang around until Maitreya Buddha come along. And then you, you know, the thing would start up again. But, so the best thing you could do is make some merit, keep the thing going in some form or another until the next Buddha comes along. That was the, that was the line, as it were. And Buddhism was more or less just a, a culture. And uh, and a study, and it was people like Ajahn Mun and Ajahn Sao who felt, no, this can't be right, you know. <laughs> no, you know, it can't. It's, if you really, really, really respect the Buddha, then you respect, you know, the 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 practice of it. It's not just uh, venerating the scriptures, but but the practice of it. So they they basically went off to live in the forest and live on alms food and, and uh, that if you live like the Buddha did, then you you know you can get results the Buddha got. That was a very simple piece of logic. And that was really the line that's still um, held very dearly in, in the forest traditions. They tend to poo-poo any kind of study and intellectual activity as being just kind of something that's going to stir your head up and make you lose, lose uh, get caught up in views and ideas and not be directly experiencing practice. Najin Chah himself didn't read very much, um, certainly tried to discourage particularly the more educated Westerners who get very attached and involved with uh, books and learning from From doing a lot of studies, said you know do a little bit, but really put the books away and just get down because it 's a simple pace of life, which a lot of people felt grateful for, you know, just to come down to the earth again. but the interesting one of the features was that as a child there was always this there was ambiguities, because it was always like any line he had, he always had a, a counterpoint to it. So you see, it's not really, ultimately, that. It's just to, as the famous image he has is of if you're leaning, if you see drunks going down a road, and some of them are falling in the ditch on the left, you tell them to move to the right. And if the people, drunks are falling in the ditch on the right, you tell them to go to the left. So the people who study too much, you say, you don't study. The people who don't study at all, you say, you should look at the books. You know, so you would always have counterpoises. And the only, in his, his kuti, which is very simple, the only image he had of a monk was of Ajahn Dasa, who was a great scholar. He, he's on the shrine. And uh, so, so he held Ajahn Dasa very, because Ajahn Dasa wasn't just a scholar, he was an iconoclast as well, as well. He was someone who was kind of really investigating and wrote lots of books and Ajahn Chah really appreciated his sense of what he was doing in his own domain was was shaking the dust off and turning things upside down and investigating and in fact shaking the shaking the study tradition around so he was there and Ajahn Buddha Dasa had a lot of respect for Ajahn Chah so it's interesting you know how you can kind of think that the you know the tradition is one thing dependent on it's always this or it's always this form or we never do this, we never do that. But Ajahn Chah would always play it in different ways and you could see that fundamentally it was using a form, using various forms in order to to bring around letting go, direct realization, in whatever way, wherever you're coming from. So he taught... Um, thousands of people and he'd have different ways of teaching monks or nuns uh, his basic practice of what pa Pong would be, go for the alms round and then after the meal he'd sit under his kuti, the meal would generally be about 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning and then he'd sit there until midnight talking to people, people would just come and just be talking and then he'd Midnight, he'd retire. Then at three o'clock, morning chanting. Go back, do the morning chanting, morning puja meditation. So during that time, there'd be generals. Um, there'd be crooks. There'd be farmers. There'd be merchants. There'd be scholars. There'd be all kinds of people coming along. And he'd actually open it up to whoever and give them something that they could reflect on. So someone of immense uh, uh, multiplicity of of angles, with a very simple core root. Check what's happening in your mind. Practice with integrity. Practice letting go. And whatever it does that takes you to letting go, that's what that's what you're going to do. And it's generally it's uncomfortable. (laughs) so you know it's the uncomfortable bit the standard that often people experience with him was he had uh, um, wasn't so much a particular um, plan of, of structure of teachings it's always you know whatever's needed to to you know get people established and then start you know, moving it around so wherever one was leaning on, you get that pulled away. You lean on something else, you get that pulled away. So you gradually, and you're, all the time, you're, you're being re-established uh, well in terms of routine, in terms of simplicity, in terms of ethical standards, in terms of contemplation. That's continually coming back to that, and everything else that you find yourself leaning on is taken away, and you keep. And you get stronger bits more get taken away and you know, as you get stronger a bit more gets taken away till so you eventually you know you're completely independent and you say that would be the basic mode of it so often his when people first came it was generally he was very very warm and encouraging and uh, he had this charm that could melt people you know you come in you often not offer them bottles of Pepsi or something and treat them just like he was their favourite uncle incredibly warm, bubbling effervescent personality so you you get in and then there'd be a few years of getting kind of looked after and then you'd start to actually kind of distance, push people away Um, (coughs) send people off to other places People get too fond of him, he'd send them off somewhere else. Some barren desert monastery stuck out on the borders with some grumpy old Ajahn <laughs> Some tough one or somebody, you know, he didn't feel very fond of it not a very pleasant personality, you've got to go and be with that. He'd just get sent there, it wasn't like, where would you like to go? He'd just say, you, 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 off there, you there, you there, you go and live with him. That was it, you know. If he wanted to go on Tudong, he'd say, "No, you can't go." If he wanted to stay in the monastery, he say, "You've got to go to <laughs> So it was always like that. And yet, uh, um, because of his immense um, use of humour, to uh, and and warm heartedness, it was always a there was a kind of teasing quality rather than a brutal quality to it. Hmm. And this quality of humor, I think, is uh really interesting because it seems so essential in many ways when we recognize that uh you know we come out of the intensity of what we're holding on to and getting self important and feeling we are something or we're not something you know, one of the first things that occurs is you step back as you you start to <laughs> see the absurdity that one's getting hung up about, you know, some little piece of, of, of you know, decoration you're getting all fussy about or somebody says something you didn't like and you get really upset about that. And you think, Goodness, it's so, you so, the mind makes so, such a big deal out of things and you start, step back from that, then either you go into a lot of, of self-blame or you just start to get a sense of humour about it all. And, of course, so his basic... Meeting of the of the craziness of the self view, um, its its absurdity, its self importance was this deflationary humour, which he'd use as a as a as a, a kindly means, as like a kindly means of teasing people. So I remember one of my friends, uh, Kirisara when he went. To, to see him Kittisara had been doing this um, he'd started practicing with um, the Goenka uh, uh, tradition which is often does a lot of body sweeping where you you note the different sensations at different parts of your body spend an hour or so going through your body from the soles of your feet up your legs down your arms your fingers and you get little points of sensation in the intestines, in the hearts. So you get this very, very exacting analysis, moment by moment, sweeping around your body to, to check out the sensations. This is the way they, they practice. So it's uh, and basically practicing that and contemplating impermanence and change as you do so. So he, he was doing this. He did this practice for a while, uh, worked with it, and must have got some good results. But then they said, well, he met uh, an American in Oxford called Doug Burns who recommended he go out and see this Ajahn Chah teacher in Thailand. So he suddenly thought, I'll do it. He went out to Thailand and went to see Ajahn Chah, turned up and... Uh, explained what he was about, you know, what it, and, you know, through a translator. He said, have you done any meditation practices? Oh, yeah. So he says, what kind of practice do you do? So he detailed this thing about his body sweeping, going through every little portion of his body, moment by moment. Ajahn Chah then got down on his hands and knees and started sniffing his body like a dog. He said, you're feeling like this. <laughs> Imagine this kind of man, in a monk's gets on his hands and knees and starts sniffing himself like a dog. He said, <laughs> he said that's what you call meditation, is it? <laughs> 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 and it wasn't meant to be unkind. It was just the kind of seeing how you can get kind of stuck on the technique and, uh, you know, uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't really emphasize any particular technique or he'd be very conscious of people's tendency to get to get inflated with a technique. Yeah. So he would never uh, never give anybody any sense of attaining anything. You know, some people would say, you know, they'd claim they claim they're a sotapanna and he would say, Oh, you're sotapana, huh? Oh, well that must be better than being a dog, I guess, you know. Uh, so he'd, he'd always undercut that, any any sense of attainment, he'd never claim any attainments himself, or even, um, or any hero worship. So when people asked about Ajahn Mun, uh, who is the most highly respected monk in Thailand in the last 200 years or so at least, in terms of everybody reckoned him to be um, impeccable at an arrow hunt and... And people love to have these stories of people of their psychic powers or their prowess or their ability to fly or something like that or read minds. And they'd ask Ajahn Chah. was Ajahn Man, you know, they like they like these wonderful stories. What was he like? Was he in Arahant? He said, Ajahn Man was a good monk. That was, that's all he'd say. <laughs> he was a good monk. You know. Just what do you need to you know, you want to get another hero worshipping thing going? You know? And they'd say, What about you know, people asking what he was an hour? Around. He said, I don't. you know, I don't bother with that. It's just, you know it's like a tree. Doesn't know it's a tree, you just you're just there and the birds come and sit on you. He said, I just feel like that, I'm just someone, I'm just here. And people come, things come and go through me, like a bird landing on the tree, but I don't bother with any, any of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's always the things that we can find ourselves moving away from this, this center of integrity and clarity and conscience and kindness into being something, into leaning on a tradition, into leaning on a teacher... Into hero worship, into making a cult, an agent child cult, you know, all the things that we can, the human mind wants to do. And uh, say, all this is something that our tradition is about acknowledging that, acknowledging the degree to which we need. You know, forms, people, teachers, training, situations, structures. We need them. And also, we can get lost in them. So Ajahn child always, you know, definitely set up monasteries. Obviously strong emphasis on Theravada Buddhist teachings. Putting himself... At the centre of it all is the teacher, absolutely. And at the same time, saying, "Yeah, but it's nothing to hang on to." Yeah. As you, as you use it, you use it for what it's what it's there for, then it comes back to something very simple. So, I think this is uh, to me the the encouraging thing, you know, worth celebrating. Because as we see, Thailand's gone through these huge changes and who knows where it'll be in the next 25 years. Um, mm-hmm. And now we're bringing the Dharma to the West. He felt, and he said this on a few occasions, he said, well, Thailand's like a, like a big tree. Buddhism there's like a big tree, big old tree. It's got big branches and many leaves, but most of it is dead. You look at a big oak tree, the only living tissue is just under the bark. Most of it is is dead, but it's got massive strength and structure. In the West, it's like a sapling. It's not very strong, but most of it's alive. It's kind of looks spindly and weak. But it's it's most of it's green, alive. It hasn't got much much hardwood on it. Not much bark. It's quite vulnerable. You yeah. roots aren't strong. But it's much more alive. He so said this is really where he felt Buddhism was going to grow and develop in the West. He was because he he really appreciated how much uh, Western people uh, wanted to meditate, whereas by and large the emphasis on Thailand is much more devotional and making offerings. Uh, and so he really appreciated and respected Western people's interest in knowing for themselves, finding things out for themselves and committing themselves to to uh, direct experience. So, you know, to me, I obviously I've, I've met Ajahn Chah's Stayed with him some. I've heard many, many stories. I've been to the monasteries. I didn't spend a lot of time with him because I was late in his life. Uh, but everything that I've heard, both from other people and what I saw for myself and heard of him, stayed, stayed in my mind. Yeah. I've tried to to keep keep it there. Mm. With a feeling that uh, this is this is, to me, uh, where I am, most uh, a very useful way to bring the fullness of the Buddhism into into the West, and it hasn't properly, hasn't completed itself by any means yet. Um, often people talk about bringing the Dhamma to the West, but what they sometimes miss out on is bringing the vinia, which uh, means the training, the ethical training, the sense of lineage, the sense of tradition, the sense of convention. And, uh, you know, this is where I think the, the most important thing to counterbalance is the West's tremendous Love of innovation and ideas and exploration, and its uncertainty around the value of tradition, convention, custom. You yeah. know, it always seems that's the that's the handbrake. Always feels like it's something that's you know we get sort of get out of all this stuff. You know, but actually this in its when you understand it, not just purely as a, as a set of rules, but as a whole training in in um, disciplining yourself in checking the mind in uh, developing a sense of communality in developing a sense of culture in developing something that's, uh, that's going to stand uh, on the planet then this whole aspect of vinya is perhaps the strongest thing that we have to that we can offer to people certainly in our little neck of the woods You know, there are many people who know a lot more about Buddhism than we do. You know, scholars and students who know a lot more have got all the time to do that. Uh, There are people, many people are expert, you know, in teaching, training in teaching the the suttas. The thing that for monasticism offers is the discipline, the sense of communality because its basic form is one of interdependency. We all have to share, live with each other, bear with each other, forgive each other, comfort each other. You know that's what that's what the vinya is about. That's what it's that's its essential form. The training that enables one to do that. Yeah. And so and this was the thing that specifically Ajahn was was extremely strong on, you know. So a lot of the presentation of teachings is just training, 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 you know. Serve, share, help, be resilient, be self-reliant, discipline yourself, live simply. hmm. Finding a way to live the Dhamma. Uh... And this is, uh, to me, you know, where it has to grow and what we can offer. And with a realization that as it sits in this particular piece of planet Earth, in this culture, it's going to breathe in the Western culture. It's That's the air it's going to breathe. And that's how it has to express itself, keeping itself rooted in the ground of the vineyard, the ground of the training, the ground of integrity and same time, expressing itself through the forms that are accessi- that make it accessible to this culture. So tonight we'll have the a vigil. So I think this is again, as I said, the perhaps the most direct way we can. Uh, um, commemorate and show our respect, gratitude and try to to be that growth point, everyone. You know, to put ourselves into a little bit of effort, of giving up, of commitment, you know, to be part of that growth point of the Dhamma in the West. You know, for our own welfare, for the welfare of others. So tonight the form is is we can use this uh, Dhamma Hall for meditation, walking practice outside. Um, Please try to stay in touch with the the central theme of the evening. And if we meet again at about um, 11.30, then we'll do some chanting and conclude the evening.